All right, we are going to complete our study in Judges tonight, Lord willing, if that is, if we have enough time to get through everything. So let me do just a quick little advertisement for our next study. Uh, we, even though Judges, we have, Judges hasn't been quite a word-by-word exposition of the book of Judges. Um, that would take a very, very long time. We are uh, going to be going through a, a word-for-word, a more of a word-for-word exposition, but we're going to do it on just a short passage of Scripture. Um, just been praying about exactly what to do. I had something else planned, but because of uh, some different things that the Lord has brought to me, I've decided to switch, and we're going to talk about uh, the Beatitudes. We're going to study what it is that God tells us is important uh, in facing life, uh, how, to, how to be happy according to what Jesus told us when we have the, the, the great Sermon on the Mount that was recorded for us. That will be starting next Wednesday night. Tonight, we're going to finish in probably one of the more difficult passages to preach. And whenever you teach from the Bible and you give different ways, there's always things that mess up what you encourage people to do. And this is one of the things I've always told you. If you want to understand a story, just try to imagine the story as a movie. If you try to imagine Judges 19 through 21 as a movie, you're going to have to skip most of the movie. It's a very bad movie. Very bad movie. Um, and so we're going to study this, but I, don't, I, I want to encourage you, as we look at this, many people just pass over this. In fact, I was reading some different individuals who uh, prepared sermons on this, and, and one pastor commented that it was their practice, whatever they were going to be preaching on in the service, he would have a deacon read from the pulpit, and none of his deacons would read the Bible. They said, I'm not reading that in church. Imagine, and you say, well, there's no way a deacon would stand up and say, well, wait, if you're not familiar with Judges 19 through 21, um, you'll understand why. And for that purpose, I'm not going to be reading long passages of Scripture. I'm going to tell you a more general term of of basically what's happening so that you have the idea. I'm not going to get, the Bible is not graphic, the Bible is not lewd, uh, but the Bible is rough in some of the different things that it reports to us. And this is one of those areas where it is letting us know the depths of this depravity of mankind. You have to understand, as we're studying Judges and you're studying the biblical narrative, you always have to understand the narrative is a little bit different. The narrative is not told chronologically. The narrative is told basically to tell us something about God, to give us an idea. And we basically have three things we look at. We look at the theological message of the narrative. Well, where does this, where does this fit in the Bible's larger story? Where are we as far as redemption? What do the people that this is happening to, what do they know about redemption, God's plan for redemption? And the people who are first reading or receiving this narrative, what do they know about redemption? This is very early in the story of redemption. None of the people involved in either hearing this story or being a part of this story know of God's plan of sending the Messiah to be the substitute for sin. Uh, they, they know that God is going to send a deliver, but they have no idea what we know about that. But this really tells us that this is the kind of story you should read and you should walk away with an absolute healthy fear of walking independently of God. Because this is the kind of story that, that you walk away from, you kind of say, ooh, that, I don't want that to be me. Now, some of you may remember in some of the different, uh, how many of you had to take driver's ed? You had to go someplace and take driver's ed. Okay. How many of you had to watch some of those movies that were basically just made to scare you into never getting behind the wheel of a car? Do you remember those? Okay. And they would show you these twisted, I mean, the stuff that they showed 
in, in driver's ed. When I was in, in 1985, I think, in Michigan, and went there, and they were, you know, death on the highway, and this person was doing this, and this person wasn't paying attention, and this person didn't kiss their mom goodbye, and all these different things that these teens didn't do, and their car was wrapped around a tree, and there's body parts all over. I mean, it was just, I remember sitting there thinking, yikes. And that's exactly what you should think when you, when you read this story is, yikes. Because this is a picture of the depravity of man and what happens. The end of the story of when we walk away from God and we walk in our own wisdom. And so we have to look at the theological message. But then you also have to look at what this story reveals about God and his relationship with his people. And after understanding what happens here in Judges, every time, whenever you read the rest of the Bible and you hear God talking about how he tenderly reached out to the children of Israel... And you understand exactly how depraved Israel had gotten. The, the judges makes you understand so much about the grace and the goodness and the wonder of your Savior. And when you hear him saying, I, I, I tried to woo you as a husband, would you, you, this will change how you read Hosea. This will change how you read the different passages of Scripture that talk about how God called after them. It will change what you think about Jesus Christ when he stood over Jerusalem and said, you know, I, I wanted to protect you like a hen would, would protect her chicks, but you wouldn't let me. And it just lets you see the wonderful relationship that God has with his people. And then, of course, the last thing we look at is, what, what warning does this give? The warning of this, we've already said it, it goes back to the depravity of man. Because here's what's true about us with our sins. Not other people's sins. With other people's sins, we recognize them, we're horrified by them, and we see how terrible they are. But with our sins, we're used to those sins. They're not as scary. They're not that big of a deal. We, we oftentimes will in, involve ourselves in other people's lives because of struggles that they're having and we'll just kind of go over what, what we're struggling with because it's not that big of a deal. We, we, can, we can move on. And this is going to completely change us. So we're going to look at Judges 19, 20, and 21, Lord willing, in the next uh, half hour or so. Going to kind of go through that. They're just going to let you understand what the story is happening, what's going on there, and then we're going to draw some conclusions at the end so that you can see what, the, uh, what, the, what I believe the writer is trying to teach. Okay. So remember, we just had Judges 17 and 18. We just had the story about a man who was praising the Lord because now he had a Levite to help him break the commandments of God. Now, that's not what he said. He didn't say, oh, praise the Lord, now I have a Levite to help me break God's commandments. But he literally said, now the Lord's going to bless me because now I have a Levite to help me in my worship of a false god, a false idol. And that was the first kind of closing. That was, that's what's happening there in that particular area. But now Judges 19 and 20 is going to tell us, or 19, 20, and 21 is going to tell us about the story of an entire tribe's wickedness. And when you read this, you're going you're gonna to start thinking, hey, this sounds kind of similar to another story. And so what happens in verses 1 and 2, we're introduced to a Levite who has a concubine. And this concubine is his concubine, but she decides to leave him and go back to her hometown. And so she leaves him, and she leaves him, and it, the Bible is very expressed in the way that it says, basically didn't leave him just because it was a difference of opinion. She went back to her hometown to be with her, her former lovers. She left him, and after a few months, he goes to try to get her back. And so this Levite travels to her hometown, goes to his father-in-law's house. The father-in-law is excited that the husband has showed back up. Now, I'm not going to get into all the different details of why the father-in-law could be excited. Some of you may say it seems kind of strange, but the father-in-law is very excited that the, the, the man has come back. And the man and the concubine, he says, okay, we're going to take off. The man comes, he's got a servant, so he's a well-to-do person, he's got a servant. He's coming back, he's got his wife, he's about to take off, but the father-in-law says, hey, stick around for a while, let me be hospitable to you. And so in verses 3 through 8, he basically 
talks him into staying for five days. He stays for three days, which is like the maximum amount of time that one would expect to stay. And then as he's getting up to go the fourth day, the father-in-law literally in the Hebrew says to him, hey, stay, this will be good for your heart. Help your heart out. Stick around a little bit. Eat this morsel of food. Stick around. I want to help you. So he sticks around the fourth day. The fifth day he gets up and he tells his servant, tells his wife, we're packing up, we're going, we're leaving. And the father-in-law comes back and says, well, then just stay for breakfast. This, this is good. This will be good for your heart. And so, and then he tries to talk him into staying again, and the Levite says, no, I'm going to take off. So he takes off, and he says, specifically, we're going to go as far as we can go tonight, try to head back home. So he starts heading up, and then he gets to outside of Jerusalem, which in here, in Judges, is called the town of the Jebusites, okay? And it's not, Jerusalem is not yet under control of Israel. And his servant says, hey, this is the close-by town, let's stay here. Levite says, nope, I'm not staying with foreigners, I'm going to stay with other Israelites. So he goes uh, to Gibeah. And so he, he goes into Gibeah and he sits down on the square. And you need to understand that in those times in the Bible, sitting down in the square was advertising, I need a place to stay for the night. An old man comes along, sees him, runs over to him and says, hey, you can stay with me. The Levite says, listen, I just need, I just need a roof for my head. I've got provender for my animals. I've got food for us. I'm not going to be in imposition. I just need to be out of the weather underneath. And the old man says, no, 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 we're going to take care of you. You come here. And, and the old man, basically, you can kind of see the, the haste. He's trying to get him out of the square because night is coming. And this is where this starts to begin to sound like a story from Genesis. Because while the Levite and this stranger are having dinner, and it says they're making their hearts merry, the Bible says certain men of Belial. Now, what does that mean in the King James Bible? Certain men of Belial. Does not mean they're from Belial? What does that mean? They're wicked people. Okay. That's, not a, that's, that's, a, that's a term nowadays a lot of times you can use with somebody, you know, and they wouldn't know what you're talking about. You could say, well, hey, this is quite a man of Belial here, right, don't we? And they might go, oh, thank you very much. But it's not a compliment. Certain men of Belial show up and they do the unthinkable. Let me read this part to you, verse 22, Judges 19. Now as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, sons of Belial, beset the house round about, beat at the door, spake to the master of the house, the old man saying, Bring forth the man that came into thine house, that we may know him. Now there's a story from Genesis coming into your mind. Do you remember another time when the people of the city surrounded a house and beat on the door and said, throw out the guys that are there so that we can know them? And this was not saying we would like to meet them, introduce ourselves so that the next time they're through we can you know, play Parcheesi together. That's not what they were saying. They were basically saying, unlock your door, we're going to assault the men that are in your house. We're going to rape them. Send them out here. This is in Israel. In Genesis 19, where was it? Sodom and Gomorrah. Without a doubt, the reader would immediately, when they, start, when they got to this verse, they would immediately, their mind would have gone immediately to chapter 19 of Genesis. Well, it would not have been a chapter back then, but they would have started thinking of that story because it sounds just like it. Verse 23 says, the man, the master of the house, went to them and said to them, Nay, my brethren, I pray, do not so wickedly, seeing this man has come to mine house, do not this folly. And then something unthinkable happens again. He says, behold, here's my daughter, a maiden, and his concubine. Them I'll bring out now and humble them and do with them what seemeth good to you. But unto this man do not so vile a thing. 
But the men would not hearken to him, so the man took his concubine and brought her forth unto them. And they knew her and abused her all the night until the morning. And when the day began to spring, they let her go. So here we have the men of Israel wanting to commit the horrible sin of homosexuality. And the, the host of the house and the husband of the concubine both have the same answer. We're not coming out, but here you can have my daughter, you can have my wife. Now, there's only one big difference between here and Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis 19, it indicates that all the men of the city surrounded the house. Here, it's just certain sons of Belial. It was just a a group of individuals. So it was not the entire city that evidently was about this practice, but still, this is happening in the coast of Israel. So now, Israel has stooped to the level, the morality of the Canaanites. And the thing is, is that the people that were inside the house, they, they did not seem as concerned about the assault, about the activity. It was just, no, 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 don't, don't do this here. If, if, if you have to brutalize somebody, brutalize these people instead. It just does not make any sense. And then in Genesis, or in Judges uh, 19, 26 through 30, the next morning the Levite comes out. This concubine is there on the threshold of the door. She has crawled back to the door. Her hands are clasping the threshold of the door. And he says, okay, get up, time to go. She can't get up, she's dead. So he takes her and loads her up and he takes her home and he divides her body up, which means he cuts her into 12 pieces and he sends a piece of her. Now to our mind, that's just, that's strange. But they would have understood that along with that divided part of a human body would have gone the story of what happened. That this particular Israelite had been shamed, and he, this was a calling card to go out saying, I want all of Israel to respond. That's how Judges 19 ends. In Judges 20, we see a civil war. Look at verse 1, it says, Then all the children of Israel went out, and the congregation was gathered together as one man, from Dan to Beersheba, with the land of Gilead, unto the Lord in Mizpah. And the chief of all the people, even all the tribes of Israel, presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 footmen that drew sword. So when this story went out that said, hey, we have been attacked, embarrassed. Um, this is not something that is going to go beyond the children of Israel. They're not just going to look at it and say, oh, no, they show up, 400,000. And if you look at verse 3, it says, now the children of Benjamin heard that the children of Israel were gone up to Mizpah. Honestly, it appears as if The Levites sent a piece of this body and the story to everyone, even to Benjamin. Benjamin heard about it, but they didn't do anything. They didn't send anybody. So Benjamin did not react to what happened in their own tribe, okay? But the other 11 tribes realize, hey, this is is not good. And so they say, hey, we're we're going to take care of this. So verse 3, they say, then the children of Israel said, tell us, how was this wickedness? They said, okay, we're here. We're not going to get it through a messenger. We want to hear it from you. Levite, that this happened to, tell us what happened. And here's what he says, verse 4. The Levite, the husband of the woman that was slain, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belonged to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to lodge. He makes himself look good. He skips the part where he's gone to find his wife who has left him to go back to be with her lovers in her hometown. He didn't say that part. He just says, my wife and I were traveling. We came here to lodge. The men of Gibeah rose against me and beset the house round about me by night and thought to have slain me. And my concubine, they forced that she is dead. Now you need to understand that word men in this verse, he is not talking about all the men of Gibeah. That is the word that is typically used for the leaders, um, the, the ones in control. So it's more like the leaders, the, the rulers. So there, there's a certain folks in Gibeah. So he's kind of painting a picture here 
Uh, that's not the exact truth of what's happening. Um, and it says they rose against me. There's no mention of rape. There's no mention of homosexuality. It's just they, they, were, they were after me, which is what some modern people will take and say, see, the sin of this passage was the lack of hospitality by the Benjamites. That God has nothing. He's not saying anything about homosexuality in this passage. That has nothing to do with it. They will try to use this passage and say, this is talking about the sin of not being hospitable. But that is tearing this passage away from its context. Okay, because every man is doing that which is right in his own eyes. This guy is just painting a picture of how bad it was. Then verse 6, it says, I took my concubine, cut her in pieces, sent her throughout the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed lewdness and folly in Israel. Behold, you are all children of Israel. Give here your advice and counsel. And in the next few verses, through verse 11, they say, okay, this is, this is what we're going to do. We're, we're going we're to give them a chance, but then we're going to attack them. And so that's what they do in verse 12. The tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, what wickedness is this that is done among you? So they give Benjamin a chance. They say, hey, Benjamin... What the tribe of Benjamin, what happened? Why did you allow this to happen in your tribe? They say, deliver us the men, the children of Belial, which are in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and put away evil from Israel. But the children of Benjamin would not hearken to the voice of their brethren, the children of Israel. So while all of the men of Benjamin were not absolutely participating in this sin, when it was told to them what the men of Gibeah did, the men of Benjamin said, well, I guess basically... You know, blood's thicker than water. We're not, we're not messing with the other fellows in, in our tribe. We're, we're going we're, we're gonna to stay with them. We're not going to stay with what we think is right. So the, verse 14, the children of Benjamin gathered themselves together out of the cities of Gibeah to go out to battle against the children of Israel. Now, about 26,000, almost 27,000 uh, Benjamites prepare for battle. The Bible tells us 26,700. How many children of Israel had gathered? 400,000. They said, well, we're not going to send all 400,000. They said, we'll, we'll just basically, we'll take one of every 10. So we'll cut it down from 400,000 to 40,000, and we'll, we'll say who should go up. They ask the Lord. The Lord tells them, Judah's going to go up first. So they, they send the tribe of Judah against the Benjamites, and they ask the Lord twice, should they go to battle? The Lord tells them twice to go to battle. He does not promise them the victory. That's a very difficult thing for some Bible scholars. They say, why, why did God not do this? But we just see Basically, the only thing that you, can, that you can surmise from that is that they went to God and basically said, God, is it okay to go? And God did not stop them. The third time when they asked, God says, go, I'll give you victory. And so it, it appears as if the first two times they just, they went because God did not say, don't go. The third time God said, go, and I'm going to give you victory. He, he promised that there was going to be success. But the first two times they're not successful. And, and the first time they lose 22,000 men. That happens in verses 19 to 21. And then in 23 to 25, they lose another 18,000 men. Then after losing twice, then they begin to weep and they begin to pray and they begin to uh, offer sacrifices and they ask God. And, and God says, go, I'll deliver Benjamin into your hands. And then the rest of the chapter from verse 29 through 48 are the battle details. And the battle is told in two different stages there's a there's a short stage and then it's kind of elaborated and basically what happens is the israel goes to attack benjamin and they have a benjamin comes out and fights them and they immediately pretend like it was every other battle and they start running away from benjamin benjamin starts chasing after them and benjamin leaves their city the israelites had people laying in wait the people laying in wait go into the city and kill everybody in the city and the men that were outside said, after you get done wiping out the city, set everything on fire, we'll see the smoke go up, and we'll know that we can turn, that you've got that part done, and we'll turn, and we'll fight the rest of the Benjamites there. 
And so they do that. They go in. Now imagine if this part of the city, if they're they're raising 26,000 people, this is not a tiny place. But Israel goes in, wipes out the city, sets the city on fire. Uh, The Gibeonites, they see the Gibeonites, they see this fire, they turn around, and they are fearful for the people back in their city. They turn around to flee back to the city. Israel closes in on them and wipes out everybody but 600 men. 600 men see what has happened, and they flee up into the mountains and hide in the rock rimmon, the Bible says. And that's the end of, of this, the civil war there in Judges 20. You say, well, man, how, how, how much worse can it get? Wait, it gets even worse. Because guess how Judges 21 starts out? The children of Israel now are all weeping. Why are they weeping? Man, we've got a tribe of our brothers and sisters of Israel that's down to 600 people. What a terrible day in Israel. I mean, it just just doesn't make sense. They've done exactly what they want to do, then they turn around and look at it and go, oh man, what what are we going to do? And so they mourn and they consult the Lord. What should we do? The Lord does not answer. So they kind of come up with a plan. And they come up, here's here's what we're going to do. We will punish anybody who didn't come to this battle against Benjamin. Is there anybody who didn't come? And behold, guess what? They figured out nobody from Jabesh Gilead came. So they went, well, to punish Jabesh Gilead, we'll go to that city, we'll kill all those people except all the unmarried women. So that's what they do. So here's their solution to the sin of what's been happening and what's gone on in Benjamin. Well, we'll... We'll punish whatever people didn't come with us to fight because they didn't answer the, the, the call to battle. We'll punish them by killing them and we'll take their unmarried women and we'll give them to Benjamin and they'll, they'll do it. So they went there, they wiped out Jabesh Gilead. They took all the women, but they're still short, 200 women. So they had 400 people. Now, what do you call that? that sound, does that sound like a good, a good solution? Lord, what should we do? I'll tell you what, we need to be nice to our brothers. So let's go over here and kill our other brothers and take their family over to them, we'll give them to them. Well, then they come up and they say, you know what, we still are short 200 people. Now, this whole story kicks off with a certain men of Belial coming in saying, hey, we want to assault this man. And believe it or not, the whole story ends with the children of Israel coming up with another plan for another type of kidnapping and assault. Because there is a certain feast that happens, and this, at this feast... The unmarried women come and they participate in a certain place in this feast. And the people of Israel said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have this feast. We'll tell those 200 guys that still don't have a wife, just hide. And when this feast is going on, run out and grab your wife. Now we know because of the Israelite law, they didn't just run out and grab a wife. This was not a seven brides for seven brothers situation. Okay. They basically said, run out, grab a wife, and then take her away because the, the law in Deuteronomy is if somebody lays with a damsel in the field and nobody is there to stop them, then if the, if the damsel is not married to somebody else and the person is willing to marry them, then they can be married. So the Israelites basically used their own law to say, okay, you, we'll, we'll be away so that you can go and grab your wife, assault her, and then choose to marry her, and that'll be right according to the law. And so they finish with basically setting up a time for 
this feast, this, this, this celebration to be a, to, to be a setup for, for people to again assault other people in the land of Israel. And then the Bible ends with verse 25, the famous phrase that honestly Judges is most often known for. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Now the Lord is not prescribing anything that is going on here. That last statement, it tells us exactly what's going on here. All of this that you just read, you should have been shaking your head saying, how did it get to this? How did it get to this? How in the world? And you'd think, well, this must have happened since this is at the end of Judges. This must have happened after a long, slow degradation. But we find out in the middle of this story that this actually happened pretty, pretty quickly, just a couple of generations after they took over the promised land. So this was not after a couple hundred years of judges where they had slowly walked away. This is pretty quickly after they got there, that they got to this point. So what are some of the things that we learn from this? Let me just, I've got a number of these and we're running out of time. So let me give these to you. This, this should make you absolutely shudder in fear when you think of making decisions outside of the counsel and direction and word of God. Now, what's the easy thing for us to do? Well, I've made decisions outside of the word of God, but I've never decided to, you know, throw my wife out to, you know, serial rapists. I've never, we always want to give ourselves the burden or the benefit of the doubt and say, I would never do anything like, but this entire story is to make you sit up and realize, I don't ever want to walk without knowing that this is what God wants me to do. Because the end of that pathway, there's a way which seemeth right to a man, but... And they're over the ways of death. Well, I thought this would be good for my kids. Nobody ever decides in one fell swoop to destroy their marriage, to ruin their family, to split a church. It comes in small increments. And then it gets to a point where, how are you going to turn that around? And, And sense doesn't even make sense anymore. And sin now becomes the solution. Well, I'm just going to have to do this. So when you reject God's word, you lose discernment. You can't tell right from wrong. And you can actually, when you walk away from God, you can get to the point where you ask God to bless something that his word does not approve of. We see it happening right here. And even worse than that is you feel confident in it because you've gone through the motions. Just like Micah, now the Lord's going to bless me for having idols at my house we say okay now now this will be good and we do this how by looking around now when the bible talks about the the gibeah men of belial later on in the chapter we realize that those men of belial weren't a whole lot worse than the rest of the men that were there we're not we're not talking night and day difference we're talking within that culture they were worse in their culture but their culture was actually very 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 pitiful so the fact that they were wicked in their culture, men of Belial in their culture, doesn't mean that their culture was okay. And we see this, and, and if, there, if there's not a fear growing in your heart, if you're not thinking right now of, man, have I been, you're missing the point of this. This is, this is to get to shake you. Um, another thing, you can be deceived by the appearance of success. Because things happen the way that you want them to happen, you can think, okay, you know, the Lord's good with this. 
This is an acceptable thing. This is what we should be doing. Think of what the Gibeites uh, felt when they came out after that first battle and they whooped up on the ones that came to them and said that this was wrong. Um, if, if you don't have God's word to lean on, I would encourage you to wait until you have God's word to lean on. And whenever I say this to somebody, the, the very first thing that comes back is, well, Brother David, God doesn't tell us what color carpet to have in our house. No, he doesn't specifically say, thou shalt not have, you know, whatever those 70s colors of carpets were, amen? The burnt umber, the avocado, the, the yellow mustard. I remember when I was a kid seeing some different carpets thinking, oh, somebody lost a bet. But it was cool back then, so I get it, and that's what people will be looking at my carpet saying, and, you know, looking at my lamina- luxury vinyl plank or whatever, going, who would put this in their house? I, I get it, because things change. But the reality is, is that while God doesn't tell us exactly what kind of carpet to have, there are principles that should be guiding. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And to walk around, the problem isn't that most people are making every decision by God's word, they're just picking carpet out on their own. It's that they look at verses like, whether therefore you eat or drink, or whatsoever you do, do all the glory of God, and they look at it and go, well, you can't eat or drink to God's glory. I mean, that's just... You have to do that to live. And we start to make excuse. Next thing that will happen. When you don't allow God's word to set God on the throne of your heart, you become the ruler of your heart, the decider. And in not dealing with the root of sin, we actually can get to the point where we will use sin to deal with sin. Say, Pastor, that, that would never happen. Many times in counseling, I... I have to deal with folks that are, their reaction to how a spouse treats them or their reaction to how a boss treats them or their reaction to a physical malady is a sinful response that they feel right and acceptable in doing because of what has happened to them. And it makes sense. You say, well, I would never do that. How many of you have ever said something cross to your spouse because they were mean to you? Don't raise your hand. We've all done it. And it's not because we sat there in the moment and said, you know what, sin is the appropriate response for this viciousness that I'm experiencing from my, from my beloved wedded at this time. It's because in the flesh we said, you know what they need right now? They need a healthy dose of my temper. And so we sin to try to take care of sin. Something else that happens, and this is scary, but when God's word is not ruling our heart, the strong will tend to abuse the weak. Instead of being like Christ, who will not break the bent reed and will not quench the smoking flax, we, we will use our authority. We will use our power. We will use our strength. It's amazing how poorly women are treated in this passage. And that is not at all the way Christ teaches but it's acceptable. And these people who are concerned about following God and doing all these, they just absolutely mistreat women. Because when we are doing this, when we're this self-righteousness, we, we tend as a strong to destroy the weak. Last two and we'll be finished. We'll, we'll blame God for the situations in our life instead of engaging in self-reflection and asking, how do we get to this point? can't believe that God did this to my family instead of God search me, know my heart. Can't believe that God would do this 
to my house, to me, to this, instead of, Lord, what are you trying to teach me? And we want to point a finger out. We want to say, hey, we've done everything we can. We've gone to God. We've prayed. He doesn't answer. And sometimes he doesn't answer because the question shouldn't have been asked. And we, we get to this point, and again, you say, well, Pastor, when are you going to turn to the encouraging part? Did you see how Judges 21 ends? This is how it gets when people do what's right in their own eyes. And, and I've, I've mentioned this before, but Hosea 9.9, and this is the scary part, we use sin to fix sin. In Hosea 9, when God is talking about, in Hosea, the story about a, a man whose wife leaves him to become a prostitute. And God is rehearsing the sins of Israel and how wicked they are. He says something amazing in verse 9 of chapter 9. He says, they have deeply corrupted. Which means that the the rot has gotten into the point where it can't can't be flushed out. It's deeply corrupted as in the days of Gibeah. And this becomes an illustration of the exceeding sinfulness of sin. This is the path that that first little statement of, well, we don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship. We can worship in my backyard. I'm still going to worship God. I'm just going to change it just a little bit. Now, I realize that you have to be careful because you can't, you can't do the exact opposite, be like a Pharisee, be like a Sadducee, and say, okay, we figured out everything that God wants us to do so we can keep this list and do all of this. But understand, God's word still has to rule your life. You still have to be directed by what it is that God has told you and what God has laid on your heart. And instead of going by our culture's standard of what is acceptable, what's unacceptable, or, and it's not just your culture, it's your family culture. It's it's being willing to stand up and say, God, what what would you have me do? What, What is the right thing to do? And being willing to say, God, I'm not going to move forward unless you direct. And God says, I'm going to have to judge the children of Israel. They're they're going to have to be taken into captivity. I'm going to have to push the reset button because the entire collection have become like the days of Gibeah. Now here's, here's the good news, and we'll finish with the good news. Where sin did abound, what? Grace did much more abound. Grace is greater. And you see, the reaction is not, okay, well, I can do this sin because grace will take care of it. That grace is because in this room with a group this size, there are some folks, your house is right in the center of Gibeah. And you're sitting here a little nervous because you're thinking about all of this stuff and you're thinking, man, I'm one of those guys on the outside pounding on the door and the Holy Spirit's convicting you. And the devil, your flesh is whispering in your ear saying, it's too late for you. You're just going to have to get whooped. No, his grace is greater. His grace is greater. Now, here's the nice thing. As Baptists, aren't you glad you don't have to come and confess your sins to your pastor? Some of you may need to, because some of your sins may be of a public nature. And if they're of a public nature, and and folks know about them, then you need a public confession. But if they're not of a public nature, between you and the Lord and the people you've sinned against, The way that pornography is ruining our country, to think in a group this size, there's nobody in here struggling with it, you need to confess that sin. Ladies, you need to go to your husbands. Husbands, you need to go to your wives. Kids, you need to go to your parents and ask for forgiveness. And before that fear jumps up and says, well, Brother Gover, you don't know what will happen. You don't know what will happen. 
You confess and forsake, you find mercy. That's what will happen. Because if you cover your sins, you won't prosper. But there's always a fear. But if somebody finds out, then I will lose this. No, because grace is greater. God's grace is greater than any sin that you've accomplished. Jesus Christ has already died for that sin. He is offering the grace, but you have to be willing to accept it. And so I would encourage you, if your house is right in the center of Gibeah, confess, forsake. And get some help. If you are burdened for somebody, maybe it's your spouse, you know they're struggling, but they're not willing to, be willing to go with them. And tell them, darling, I love you enough, I will go with you to confess and to forsake this. But I also love you enough that I will go for you. I will go for you. We'd we'd be willing to jump in front of a child that was running out in the middle of the street, wouldn't we? But so many times we see other Christians making choices and we step back and go, well, it's none of my business. Well, it is. Because they're part of this family. And we love our family and we want to protect our family. Amen? This doesn't mean, okay, well then, Pastor, we need to talk. Because I found out something. God didn't reveal it to me. And I'll tell you, if you come to me and say, well, Pastor, I know that this, because I know this happened, I saw it, and so you need to, I will go with you when you confront it. Because if God reveals it to you, he's revealed it to you for a reason. And it's not because my line was busy. <laughs> go tell Pastor so he can take care of it. And, and I want to encourage you, don't think that you can just sit on it and it will get better. There's one antidote for sin, and that's grace. And if you confess, you find that grace, you find that mercy. So I'd encourage you to do that. All right, let's stand to our feet. We ended early. So I can say I've made one New Year's resolution come true. The rest of the year, all bets are off. <laughs> just kidding, I don't bet. That was, not, that was another New Year's resolution. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll go. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to study Judges. Lord, I ask that you would impress upon our hearts for the importance of understanding the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Lord, not playing with it, not uh, harboring it, not hiding it, uh, but Lord, dealing with it the way you dealt with it, mortifying it, killing it. Lord, and I ask that you would draw us close to you. Lord, help us not to just try to run away from sin. Lord, help us to run to you. Help us to long for that fellowship with you. Lord, for that opportunity to once again walk in the light as you are in the light so that we can enjoy you and enjoy the fellowship with each other. Now go before us, bless us, keep us, and protect us. We love you. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Good night.